Welcome to the Risk and Repeat podcast, episode number 65. I'm Rob Wright, editor of Search Security, and I am here, as usual, with my companion, expert extraordinaire, Peter Lotion. Hi, Rob. I'm very happy to be back. Can you tell? I do. I can tell, yes. I am, uh, yes, I'm back from Black Hat. Did you have a good time in Vegas? I, as good a time as could be expected in 110 degree heat and lots of people lots of the big crowds and yes so it was a it was a good show i don't think it was a great show it was educational and i feel like i really um well i'll, I'll let you ask some questions in a minute but i'm i'm just let's just say i'm happy to be back i'm happy to be back in here in chernobyl another hot zone <laughs> to talk about uh all the all the news of the week at Black Hat, and uh, and I guess for the listeners' sake, I should say our, our plan is to, since Mike Heller was also out there, a senior reporter, search security, he actually uh, spent a day at DEF CON as well, and I think uh, he and I are going to circle back at some point this week to talk about uh, all that he saw, and sort of compare notes, and you can tell me about all the voting uh, hack stuff that would uh, uh, scare me to death. So we should note that also we're recording this on... Uh, a Monday, July 31st. We normally record on a Friday, but I was in transit back to uh, back to uh, Boston from Vegas. So I guess let's get into it. Black Hat 2017, Black Hat USA 2017. Yeah, they're all over the place. Yes. These days. Yes. So my first question. Yes. Most important. Yeah. Uh, how are the hamburgers? In-N-Out Burger was, I mean, great as usual. Okay, got that out of the way. <laughs> got that out of the way. Right. So, highlights, Black Hat highlights. Uh, highlights? What, what's the most important thing you came away from there with? Oh, that is a good question. I would, I'll say that compared to the stuff that Mike saw, Mike Heller, and our editorial director, Robert Richardson, I feel like I lucked out with sessions this year. I, I caught four pretty good sessions. A couple of them were really good. And I was able to write up uh, some, some news on, on those sessions. And I, I feel generally like my, even the, the one or two sessions that I also caught in addition to those four were, were pretty good, although I didn't write anything about them. They were informative, but you know. So, so no, no duds or no busts, but I have a feeling in talking with other sort of colleagues and the in the InfoSec reporter space and some folks I know that, that there were a few of those duds this year, unfortunately. So yeah, I, I guess the, the, the best session is a different conversation. We can get a, into that in a little bit. But the, the, the thing that I, I think is probably the most important was the Broad Pond session. Mm -hmm. Now this is a story that, and, I, and we should know, this is a couple of years now that this has gone on. It feels like it's gone on. It, it's kind of a pattern where the big get for Black Hat is not actually revealed at Black Hat. It's teased ahead of time, whether it's a car hack or whatever. And you don't get all the details, but you get enough to sort of know, and it sort of lessens its impact. Uh, and I think that probably happened in this case. We heard about Broadpawn um, weeks ago. Uh, Maddie did a story about it for our news roundup, I believe. And so the, sort of the general twist of what was going on about this thing was out there, uh, a, a um, a, a bug or a vulnerability around the Wi-Fi 
chip, the Broadcom Wi-Fi chip, Wi-Fi controller that's in virtually every iOS device and a, a lot of Android devices is vulnerable to uh, a remote exploit, you know, a remote attack. And so we knew all of that sort of going into the session, but I have to say the session was, was really, I thought really well done. It was one of the longer sessions. I usually do 25 minute sessions or 50 minute sessions. This was one of the longer ones. And uh, the researcher from Exodus Intelligence, who I believe did the, the bulk of the work around finding this vulnerability and researching it, uh, Nitai uh, Argenstein, uh, he, he basically walked through the whole thing all by himself, you know, from top to bottom, and it's pretty complex. And I thought it was a good session. I mean, I, I'm curious to ask you, so, so you had heard about this, but like you were, there weren't a lot of details about this, right? I mean. Not that, not that I'd caught, um, but it was, I, I have to say that pretty much every story that came out of, out of Black Hat and last week, really good, really interesting. Oh, thank you. Something new. I mean, I, th I think part of it is the people who are reporting on it. Yeah. Uh, yourself and Michael Heller, our senior of reporter. Uh, but at the same time, I think I think that the topics that people were talking about were more interesting as well. Yeah. So I mean, this this one this one touched on a lot of different areas. I'll, I'll say the thing that I found most fascinating about the Broad Pond exploit was that it's it's not really it's an it's a proof of concept attack that basically gives remote. It's a true remote exploit. So Natai was explaining at the top of his session about how he sort of led in with like, you know, we, we remote exploits, a lot of remote exploits really aren't remote exploits. And to be a true remote exploit, it, it shouldn't require any human interaction on, on the user's end to execute. It shouldn't require any sort of assumptions about the target system. You should know everything that you need to know sort of basically before you go in to try and you exploit it. And it must, when you're done exploiting it, it should leave the system in a stable state so that you're not alerting the user to, you know, a takeover or, or whatever. There's not red f flags going up. And he said, Broadpond meets all of those. And the reason it does was fascinating. I, I kind of went into the session thinking, probably like you, oh, Broadpond, it's a, it's a Broadcom vulnerability. It's a vulnerability in the Wi-Fi chip. It's not. It's not. It's a series of. I, I I don't even know how to describe it. There is a bug involved. I think there's actually a couple. But the things that make this attack possible are not, you know, a, a, a coding error. It's it's design choices. It's stuff that was built a long time ago, that was built, sort of not. Not taking these remote exploits these types of attacks into account like they, they were talking in a session about about all the sort of the modern protections against uh, remote exploits for mobile operating systems address space layout randomization and a bunch of other things and they said you know Apple and uh, uh, with iOS and Android they have that they, they have all that covered but the Wi-Fi chip doesn't there's the catch so that that opens the door attackers start looking at the at the Wi-Fi chip and then they they find out that there's there's other sort of again it's not 
they're not vulnerabilities. They're not bugs. They are like design mistakes or shortcomings. Like like they like they built this stuff and they didn't sort of think ahead with that hacker mentality, like how somebody could take it over. So let me let me ask you this. Yeah. Is it sort of, sort of it sounds to me almost as though it's like back in a long time ago when you had a car, you could lock all the doors yes. by pushing the button down. Yeah. And if you did that and you left your keys in the car, you got locked out. Yeah. It's really a lot harder to lock yourself out of a car these days. Yes. But, you know, 50 years ago, it was pretty easy. 40, yeah. even 30 or 40 years ago, it was pretty easy. You could do it. Yeah. And in fact, once they started making those nice, uh, the buttons that don't have the, the buttony part, that yeah, they're straight. So you can't, like so you can't use a, a piece of a, of a code wire, hanger, like a hanger or something yeah. on wire, yeah. Right. So, um, but yeah, these are, that was one of the most interesting things to me that the, that it was a combination of techniques that were applied against this design, yep. and it wasn't something that you can send out a firmware uh, uh, update no, for that's going to no. fix I'm, it. I mean, there there was there was uh, a Google, both Google and Apple released um, mitigations for this. So it's not it's not an error or a vulnerability or a bug in their OS, but they did, they released something that sort of stops this from doing what it, it could potentially do, which is take over the device, well, billions then, of devices. Let me ask you uh, the other important question. Sure. Has this been detected anywhere in the wild? Or no, is no. Natai uh, said uh, during the presentation that no, but he did, a, he did a demo of it. And he said, here's a Wi-Fi hotspot, broad pond test. He's like, you can connect to it. I'll show you how it works. He did it on one of his own devices. And aside from like a, like a couple blips where it looks like as you're connecting to an, a wireless access point, it looks like it's, it's having trouble. I don't think you would notice that you were being attacked. And again, this all starts, it sort of, it starts with the fact that the Wi-Fi chip, the Broadcom chip doesn't have any of these modern protections. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have the uh, ASLR, it doesn't, it, it's just, so instead of attacking, you know, the OS or attacking the, um, the iOS chip or whatever Qualcomm chip is on an Android device, they, you know, attackers could go with this Wi-Fi chip and they probably already have. And then there's all these other little limitations and things like, so they, he talked about the 802.11 association process. Well, you don't have to do, like the user doesn't have to choose to connect to a, a malicious wireless access point. All an attacker has to do is just is create an access point that looks like it's a legit access point that you have already connected to. And the reason that attackers know what you've already connected to is because your your thing is your device is constantly sending out probe requests. So so the attack uses that against you. And then there's there's other sort of successive steps where along the way they just Oh, that we can use this to our advantage. We can do this. Oh, they forgot about this. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating. There's no authentication process for the, uh, you know, the, the, the wireless association process. It's just, it's really mind boggling. Uh, so, so that was, that was dangerous. And, and then they, he went into sort of, oh, I can warn, I can turn this into a worm. I'm like, oh, great. So if it gets on your phone, Peter, you and I are in proximity with another, with one another, it can jump to my phone and so on and so forth. So that was, 
that was bad. That was bad. I'm glad that mitigations have been released for this, but it really, again, like we always discuss about vulnerabilities and sort of proof of concept attacks, like what are, what are the chances that this, that other well-funded groups that make this their business, what are the chances that they haven't already sort of clued into something like this? That they haven't already looked at the Broadcom chip as an entry into um, taking over mobile devices. So that was fascinating. And if they haven't already, now they could. Yep. Because not everybody's going to going to upload uh, or or Im- implement the implement the uh, mitigations that yeah. Yeah. have been made available. So, yeah. so yeah. So there's another thing that we can look forward to reading writing about. For, exactly. For yeah, it's going to keep us busy. Yeah. Uh, what else? Another interesting, uh, the, probably the other big headliner for for the stuff that I I covered and wrote about was the. The session on the crash override uh, uh, and destroyer uh, malware campaign that hit the Ukraine, the Ukraine energy grid uh, back in December. There was a joint session that was actually really well done, um, well sort of uh, uh, presented and and organized. It was two different vendors. It was uh, uh, researchers from ESET and uh, some folks from uh, Dragos Incorporated. Dragos does the industrial control system security, IoT security stuff. And they teamed up for this presentation. ESA calls it in destroyer. Dragos called it crash override. But they went into sort of like, you know, house malware was really the first malware that it, that was designed to attack these industrial control systems and take down like these energy grid substations. So that's the bad news. The good news is, uh, they were pretty insistent this, that this attack does not scale. Like you can't use it and take down like uh, the entire East Coast energy grid uh, in the US. Not, not only because we use different equipment than they used in Ukraine, but it's just not the way the attack is initiated and how it works. It's not coordinated. They don't talk to one another. It's not warmable. It's not like, um, you know, like the broad pond thing. So. So they said, yeah, it's, it's bad, but it could be worse. And sort of the overriding message there was, you know, we don't get our act together and start taking action against not only enemy governments that are potentially doing these types of attacks, but also whipping our, you know, critical infrastructure and our government into, into shape and protecting this stuff, then we're going to be in serious trouble. And again, interesting point, no zero day bug, no zero day, no... No wild vulnerability, no catastrophic flaw that was just discovered. It's just they took a hard look at this. They looked at the malware and they took a hard look at the the ICS systems that were targeted. And they said, these people sat on these systems, on these networks for a long time and studied them. And that's all they did. They just studied them and they found a way in. Scary. Yeah. I mean, it's not the end of the world, but... Rolling blackouts, I don't, I don't like the idea of that. Yeah, it's not so great. No, it's not. So, uh, but they did get into some like sort of network uh, nitty gritty stuff with with how the, you know, the the ICSs and the communication protocols and how they work. I, mm-hmm. I, and I thought of you as I was in the session, and a lot of it was going over my head. And I'm like, well, Peter should be here, helping me out with this. Um, yeah, but aren't you glad I wasn't one more body in those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to the crowds towards yeah. the end. Okay. Um, <laughs> so bad. Um, Shadow Brokers, this was another good session. Yes, that was another uh, good story, Matt too. Switch, uh, the security researcher, very well-known security researcher, who's done a lot around the sort of 
the Shadow Broker um, Collective and the Dumps and everything, and really well-known guy. He did a short session on sort of just a big picture takeaway from um, the Shadow Broker's activity, their behavior, and, and generally who they might be. And he kind of came to the conclusion, I think that a lot of people at this point share, was, was that the group is, is either one or more, likely one or more members of the intelligence community. Uh, either a current or former you know, intelligence contractor and he sort of made a point to say that you know the U.S. government employs forty, fifty thousand of these contractors. They come and go. They have they have access to a lot of this stuff, and it could be very easy for someone to to take these tools and so on and so forth. And so we cover a lot of the the stuff that we've talked about here. But he made a really he he actually made this this point a number of times. And I, I, this totally went by me the first time, but. He talked about in some of these big releases, like the one with the Swift bank mm-hmm. message uh, 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 communication uh, attacks. He said they not only put the like when they released all the documentation, the files for the for the for the attacks and the exploits. They also put operational notes, like extensive operational notes about you know code names of targets, regions they were targeting, things they were looking for. And he kind of said, "No, why would you do that?" What's the point of that? You take things like that and sort of the anger that they often express at TAO, the Tailored Access Operation, and the NSA, and threatening guys that worked for TAO, like like our, our you know. Our, well, let's, let's not. Yeah, let's not say, let's let's not not say, that. Let's <laughs> let's not say, say their names. names. But he doesn't need any more of the aggravation. But, right. Yeah, so, but, but it seems like there is not only familiarity obvious familiarity with TAO and, and sort of equation group, but like ill will, hurt feelings, a disgruntled, uh, and maybe maybe this is just super duper tradecraft and these guys have concocted this to make it look like that's what they're doing and they're, and they're not, and they really are sort of foreign agents, but he made a pretty pretty compelling case for it and, uh, and just he, he really went in deep on some of the releases to show you know, okay, look, the firewall exploits are great, but here's all this information. They, they're leaking people's names, then they're threatening. Like, there's there's something else going on there, and it's not money. He was uh, he was pretty insistent on that. I think he could have been a little bit more forceful with his conclusions about uh, intelligence contractors and so on and so forth. But um, good presentation, and um, so so having checked out that story and heard Sweech's. Uh, Heard Sweech's uh, conclusions there, or or what he believes happened. What do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I um, mean, do you, do you think it's more likely that it's probably somebody from like an insider threat that was familiar with this stuff, whether they actually worked for the government or they were just a contractor? Well, I mean, re, you know, when we talk about when we speculate about this stuff, we always want to come out with a you know. A clear, obvious solution, yeah. right? We want to be able to say, "Yeah, it was that guy, um, the guy who was arrested." Uh, was it last? It was last summer. Satoshi. No, no, I'm not joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
No, the other contractor. Uh, oh, Hal Martin. Hal Martin. Yeah, he, you know, his name was evoked a couple times during the presentation. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, he was apparently in a position to to have gathered a lot of material, but then he's not unlike, as you mentioned, forty or fifty thousand other people who were contractors. Uh, then there's people who are actual employees who are presumably placed to do this kind of leaking. And, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities. We'd like to be able to come up with, an, with a short, easy, snappy answer that we can tweet out saying so-and-so is the guy. But the reality is most reality is messier. So it might have been that there's a guy, you know, they, uh, who knows? Yeah. It's some combination of something. But, it could be, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I think the, the conclusions that were drawn um, – make a, a, a lot of sense that yeah. you know who who has that access to that information yeah the other thing is and and this was a, 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 a suspicion that was floated around I believe last year somewhat after Hal Martin was arrested and the, the arrest was made public um, it could have been somebody who was somebody like Hal Martin who was a collector yeah. a hoarder of, of, of secrets or some, someone stole it from them and somebody could have stolen yeah. it from him yeah. or maybe he was in on it with you know friends of his that yeah. they wanted they decided they might want to do something yeah. for what you know whatever that was but yeah people are weird and strange and yeah and, and I guess odd, odd motivations often so yeah and and uh, but to the motivation point I know I've mentioned this in previous podcasts but just for you know for my own, the, the, the sake of my own clarity and um, that of the, the readers and listeners, I, I really, I think the, one of the biggest tells in all of this is the fact that the group tweeted out the names of some of those exploits, almost as like a, a warning shot to the NSA. Like, why would, you t- why would you tip your hand and tell them what you have? Obviously, the NSA is watching. The government's watching. They're gonna—I mean—they're gonna know what those those exploit names are. Like they haven't done anything. They haven't released anything that's really been catastrophic that they haven't sort of tipped their hand and, and given given them a warning about. And if you were really, really, really insistent on doing damage and selling this stuff for maximum value and doing damage and hurting people, you wouldn't do that. And I think that this, whoever is behind this group, they are, they're trying to make the, the intelligence community in the U.S. government look bad, and they are, they are putting the NSA to task over, you know, hoarding these vulnerabilities and making them pay for it. That's what it seems like to me. So, anyway. Um, yeah, but I, I, as with other presentations, um, uh, Matt, uh, I think he tweeted out his notes, and I, I, I think he had a more sort of extensive written report about this that is definitely worth checking out. He did a really good job on that. And then and then honestly, the, the last one, I think I told you this already, probably the best session of the show. Really one of the better sessions I've seen in InfoSec um, in a while. It was a small 25-minute session on phishing, the science of phishing. And it was uh, presented by a, a security engineer that works at Stripe, a mobile um, a sort of secure mobile payment uh, company. Um, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with them. I don't know how much about household name they are yet, but uh, real interesting con- uh, company. Carla Burnett is the is the security engineer, and she got up on stage and she she basically all the all the presentation was was her talking about internal phishing testing and research that she did, and that was it. She wasn't hawking a product. 
She didn't find a bug. She didn't find a vulnerability. It was just, she took the time to sit down and through her own testing and findings and her, her sort of approach to phishing testing, just, uh, you know, came in with those results and a report and said, here's what I found and here's why her thesis was awareness training doesn't work. Uh, phishing training does not work. Our brains aren't wired to behave like this and it's doomed to fail. And here's why we need to change it because you're never going to make the right decision. And she had data to back it up and not just data to back up that thesis, but also how the deck is stacked against the user technically. I mean, she talked about like the domains, like like how easy it is to spoof a domain, just get a .com domain for some of these big sites like a GitHub or whatever, and make it look like a legit, I mean, it is a legit address. And she said a lot of the users were trained in her, at her company to look for things like the, the green lock. You know, does the URL have the green lock? Is it HTTPS? And it's probably safe. And she's like, no, it's not. All that means is that they know how to use Let's Encrypt. That's all it means. Yeah, that that was that was a really good quote from that article. Yeah, like, she, definitely worth reading the article. Yeah, she she did she she was aces. She really did a fantastic job yeah. in the session. And I just I mean I always kind of thought phishing training and all this stuff was just useless because they're just the way people read email, the way that you're on your phone, you're thumbing through stuff, you're. Um, you're making fast decisions. You're making fast decisions. You you expect to get an email from Google. You expect to get an email from AWS. You expect to get emails. The attackers know the systems you're on. And, and let's face it, tons of people are on Google and AWS. You just start firing emails out, even if you're not doing classic spear phishing. And just, you know, with a lot of these domains being available to, for, for attackers to use or spoof and the way we don't, Authenticate the stuff is. I mean, we just we we don't authenticate this stuff, and we do a poor job, and it puts the users at risk. And this whole thing about three strikes and you're out, like you were, you click on a phishing email three times and you're fired, that is so absurd. And it's even. I mean, that that's like her presentation just really crystallized how absurd that is. And we've got to do a better job with uh, the, the the technology and actual sort of solutions around protecting this stuff. And I don't know. I, I just, I don't know what your feelings are on phishing training or how, uh, we haven't had any here. I have gone through that and I've found it to be completely useless. Well, not completely, but like, like if it's a bad phishing attempt, if you know sort of some telltale signs, great misspellings. I mean. But they're not always there and I, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I will cop to having once clicked on a phishing email link. Yeah, I admit, because, to, I admit to nothing here. Okay. But yeah, go ahead. But yeah, I mean, I, one time I, I did click on it. It was, um, as far as I know, no consequences came out of it. Yeah. But it was a real wake-up call to me. Yeah. Because, and there's, I still find myself, there's time, you get a, an email from from a company that you just did business with and they want you to click on something to track the package or yep. check something. Yep. And I've seen the I've seen the mock-ups from, from some of the phishing emails and some of the phishing attempts. Yeah. It's, that stuff looks really good. I mean. And it's really, while you're doing, while you're making those decisions, you're making, I like the way that she put it in, that, that um, was put in the article about how 
there's two different kinds of ways that your brain deals with making yep. decisions. One is to make snap decisions that you know that you have to make. Let's say you're a hunter gathering or something. You see a berry. Is it a good berry? Is it ripe? Is it not ripe? Is it a poison berry? You know, you got to be able to make those decisions yeah. fast. Yep. Um, because there's a lot of berries out there, and you got to collect enough to live on. Yeah. Um, the other kind of thought process that's, that's system two. System two. Yep. Where your brain is working is is looking more deeply into each decision. That'll work. You know, that's what they want you to do while you're checking for fishing attempts. Yeah. But the fact is that you go oh. crazy. You, you, you would you you'd be exhausted by the end of, by the time you get your first coffee. I'm exhausted now just doing this podcast. <laughs> Tell the truth. What 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 system of thinking are you using right now in in Chernobyl? Probably one. Zero. (laughs) Ah. Arrays begin at zero. Okay. Okay. That's the first one. Yeah. yeah, But yeah, that's that's basically where. Yeah. No. And 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 I should note the book that she was referring to. The the sort of the um, in in her session about system one and system two thinking was written by uh, Daniel Kahneman. Uh, it's a 2011 book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And uh, it sounded really interesting. The way she applied it to the talk was was great. And she, yeah, I, I highly recommend people check out uh, her, um, her, her research. I think it's available on her uh, Twitter account. She posted it the other day. Carla Burnett with Stripe. Um, I don't remember her. Uh, her Twitter address, but it, it's she. She also did sort of in, in addition to her slides, where she shows the phishing emails. I mean, they're identical. The URLs are identical. The template is identical. It, you can't. You're you're gonna lose. Uh, I highly recommend people check out both the slides and the uh, follow-up report. I should tweet that out. And and our article. Yeah. I, well, of course. Or that did, was, was that was? Did you write that one? I did. You did. Yeah, that was a really good one. Thank I mean, all the stuff that came out oh, of Black Hat this week, this yeah. past week was was really good. Yeah, and she just to let everybody know, she did get into sort of some uh, recommendations for technical solutions to to help protect against you know phishing attacks because some people might be sitting there going, well, if if, if there's no way to de- you know detect uh, for a user what's real and what's uh, a phishing email, then then what do you do? Uh, she recommended using things like. Uh, universal second factor from Google and Ubico. Uh, I think it's now sort of run uh, overseen by the FIDO Alliance. Uh, U2F has gotten a lot of traction lately. And another thing that they do there is they use SSL client certificates to authenticate a domain Mm. to make sure that they're not clicking on a domain that looks like a legit Amazon domain or office365login.com. Why is that domain still available for a hacker to pick up? And use, you know, it's like the story that um, we just did. Microsoft uh, going to court to take over the the domain, get get the dom- domains back that the fancy bear attackers were using for phishing attacks. Like, ah, oh, it's mind boggling. Um, but anyways, those those were the highlights, and I guess just overall thoughts too. Just be glad that you weren't uh, crammed into that convention center in Mandalay Bay, because then when that keynote got out, man. It was a sea of people, and you were like taking like. I mean, the listeners can't see what I'm doing right now, but like like little like penguin steps, from the from the big keynote room all the way down the hall, down the corridor, up the you know around the corner through another corridor, uh, up escalators, and then down through these hallways that are. I mean, it, it was like, uh, 
And it was like a video game. It was like Frogger. And, there, and there's the coffee stations and, and all the stuff that people are trying to weave around. It just, it's too crowded. It was too crowded. But it sounds a little scary, but yeah. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was um, some, some decent, uh, very good presentations that I got. So I'm thankful that I got, apparently I got the good ones. And, uh, and you know, maybe when uh, we get Mike on the horn later in the week, we can and go over some of the, the bigger themes. But those were the, those were the highlights for me. Good show. Yeah. Very crowded. Very hot. Uh, uh, no reason to press the panic button just yet, but mm. uh, we always have our finger hovering. Yeah, right we always it. have. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but that's. Uh, I guess that's it for my stuff from Black Hat. Peter, thank you for listening to me. Always glad to be here. And thank you to all the readers and listeners of Search Security out there. We will see you next time. 